the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Well, a lot going on in Washington with the impeachment uh, hearings continuing. This time, however, the 16 hours allotted to senators who pose questions through the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who reads those questions to both the House managers and the president's defense team. That um, began today and will continue possibly for two more days. And then as early as Friday, a vote will be taken as to how to proceed. It's possible that everything could end on Friday if uh, Mitch McConnell has sufficient votes to say, no, we're not calling witnesses. We're going to make a decision now. It could drag on for a considerable um, length of time. Now, we mentioned yesterday that uh, Mitch McConnell uh, indicated he didn't have sufficient votes to uh, squash um, the the possibility of witnesses. That could change over time. We'll tell you a little bit of what happened uh, yesterday as well as today, as for the first time, senators have had the opportunity to pose questions to the defenders and the prosecution in this impeachment trial. First, a look at some of the day's headlines with several Democrats openly floating the possibility they might vote to acquit President Trump. Congressional Republicans are planning an aggressive Plan B strategy in the event some Republicans break off and demand additional witnesses in the president's impeachment trial. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell privately said earlier that he hasn't uh, he wasn't sure rather that there were enough Republican votes to block more witnesses, given that some moderates in the GOP's 5347 Senate majority were wavering. Any witness uh, revolution or resolution rather would likely require four Republican defections in the Senate because in the event of a 50-50 tie, Chief Justice of the United States John Roberts, who's presiding over all of this, is highly likely to abstain rather than assert his debatable power to cast a tie-breaking vote. Well, last Tuesday night, a Senate leadership source uh, said that Republicans were specifically assessing the viability of two alternative options. One plan is to amend any resolution calling for a particular witness to also include a package of witnesses that assuredly wouldn't win enough support in the Senate. For example, if the Democrats seek to call former National Security Advisor John Bolton, Republicans might seek to question Hunter Biden over his lucrative board position in Ukraine and Representative Adam Schiff over his inconsistent statements concerning his panel's contacts with the whistleblower at the center of the impeachment probe. Another option the congressional leadership source says is for the White House to assert executive privilege to block witnesses, including Bolton. The administration could head to a court to obtain an emergency injunction against his testimony, citing national security concerns. Well, we'll see what happens over the next uh, couple of days. A LaPlane carrying about 200, uh, or rather 210 U.S. citizens evacuated from Wuhan, China, the epicenter of the deadly coronavirus, was diverted on Tuesday to California's March Air Reserve Base for the logistics uh, that they have, according to officials. Well, the plane is uh, was rather initially headed to Ontario International Airport in California. It landed in Alaska at Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport on Tuesday night. 
before it refueled and made its way to the base. Kurt Hagman, who's the chairman of the San Bernardino County Board of Supervisors and a commissioner at the airport, said on social media that the CDC had informed him of its decision to divert the flight, and some citizens there were concerned. Meanwhile, British Airways has suspended all flights to China, with the coronavirus being the fear. CNN anchor Don Lemon appeared to be on the defensive on Tuesday night after a panel discussion uh, mocking Trump supporters went viral and sparked intense backlash. This is personally important for me to address this, okay? Ask anyone who knows me, they'll tell you. I don't believe in belittling people, which, of course, is what he did precisely for quite some time, belittling anyone for who they are, what they believe or where they're from. Lemon said toward the top of his show during an interview on Saturday, he went on. One of my guests said something that made me laugh. And while in the moment I found that joke humorous and I didn't catch everything uh, that was said. Now, if you've actually seen uh, the uh, the interview Uh, That is not an accurate depiction of what actually happened. But nonetheless, that's his response. Well, the anti-Trump anchor added, just to to make it perfectly clear, I was laughing at the joke and not at any group of people about which the joke was being made. Well, the panel, which originally aired on Saturday night during special live coverage of the impeachment trial, featured Lemon, New York Times columnist and CNN contributor uh, Wahat Ali and ex-GOP strategist Rick Wilson discussing the heated exchange Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had with an NPR reporter where he allegedly challenged the journalist to point out Ukraine on a blank map. Wilson used the, the uh, topic to mock President Trump and his supporters, which he referred to as uh, credulous boomer rube demo to the laughter of Lemon. It went on from there. Uh, but anyway, and, and Lemon laughed the whole length of that uh, exchange. Well, Bernie Sanders' campaign is rocked again. More staff are caught advocating violence against their opponents. And the U.S. budget deficit is going to top $1 trillion in 2020, despite strong, uh, the strong economy, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Um, Health care access um, has declined in the past two decades, despite Obamacare. And public schools are teaching the 1619 Project in class, despite concerns from historians. Uh, Minnesota College has helped white students only deal with the nasty little racist inside them, according to uh, campus reform. And uh, how drag queen story hour indoctrination expanded across America is the subject of a daily caller uh, column that's worth uh, checking out. Florida governor uh, has announced official end to the Common Core and outlined new standards for that state. On this day in history, 1936, the first players are elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Honus Wagner, Christy Mathewson, Mathewson, and Walter Johnson. And on this day in history, 1919, the ratification of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which launches prohibition, is certified by Acting Secretary of State Frank Polk. On this day in 1975, a bomb explodes inside the U.S. State Department in Washington, causing considerable damage but injuring no one. The radical group Weather Underground claims responsibility. 1979, President Jimmy Carter formally welcomes Chinese Vice Premier Deng Xiaoping to the White House following the establishment of diplomatic relations. And in 2002, on this very day, in his first State of the Union address, President George W. Bush says terrorists are still threatening America, and he warns of an axis of evil consisting of North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. Finally, in 2009, the Illinois Senate votes 59-0 to to convict Governor Rod Blagojevich of abuse of power and throw him out of office nearly two months after the second-term Democrats' arrest on charges of trying to sell Barack Obama's vacant Senate seat. Wow. 
We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the highlights from the final day of defense arguments in the impeachment trial. That would be yesterday. Today, another phase, the, the final of three phases in this impeachment hearing on the Senate side. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today is the first day in which uh, the senators have an opportunity to pose their questions to the defenders and the prosecutors of the president in the impeachment trial, which could conclude as early as Friday or could drag on for as many as many weeks, which is kind of an odd way of putting it. But nonetheless, taking a look at the final uh, day of defense arguments in the impeachment trial, which would have been yesterday, President Trump's lawyers completed their final arguments against removing their client from office uh, on Tuesday, taking a fraction of the 24 hours that was given to them in the Senate impeachment trial. Well, the wrap-up on Tuesday, after less than two hours, or should I say fewer than two hours, followed two hours Saturday, eight hours on Monday, was a stark contrast from House Democrats' impeachment managers, which makes sense because um, the House went through an impeachment process and they have a lot to uh, to to do to try to convince the Senate that they have a strong case to impeach the president. That's their job. Their role is to present what they hope is a strong case that will convince senators to remove the president from office. Well, the Democrats logged three marathon days in the Senate, arguing for more than 21 hours out of the 24 available uh, in all forum. Trump's ouster for abusing his power and obstructing Congress in connection with the phone call, which I don't need to review. Well, next, senators um, submitted their questions. That's what uh, took place today and could continue through Friday. I put their questions in writing for the prosecution and the defense team to answer for up to eight hours uh, Wednesday and Thursday. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced late Tuesday that Democrats so far may have enough Republican votes to call witnesses in that trial, and then the big battle will be over Uh, Is it going to be tit for tat? You get a witness. We get a witness. How to configure all of that? Well, some of the things, some of the highlights from the final day of the defense argument um, during their phone conversation, the president and Zelensky briefly discussed the president's interest in Ukraine's investigating the and uh, the dealings there with former Vice President Joe Biden's son. Well, the young Biden joined the board of Burisma, a Ukrainian energy firm, while his father was uh, vice uh, president and was the point man on Ukrainian policy for then President Obama. Well, Trump also told Zelensky that he would like Ukraine to investigate whether that nation interfered feared in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Well, at the time, Ukraine's president didn't know that Trump had put a hold on the $391 million in military aid, which he would release in September. Well, early on Tuesday, Trump's personal lawyer, Jay Sekulow, took on revelations reported over the past day about a Ukraine-related passage in former Trump national security advisor John Bolton's forthcoming book. The book, according to The New York Times and others uh, reported, will say that Trump told Bolton he put a hold on the military aid to Ukraine because he wanted the former Soviet Republic to investigate the Bidens. You cannot impeach a president on unsourced allegations, Sekulow said. He cited another Trump lawyer, some Harvard Law School Alan Dershowitz, who said the night before that even if the incident did not rise to the level of 
uh, the impeachment. I want to be clear on this because there is a lot of speculation out there, Seculo said, with regard to what John Bolton has said. Here's what the president said in response to the New York Times piece. I never told John Bolton that the aid to Ukraine was tied to investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens, end quote. Well, Seculo was reading from Trump's tweet, a response to the Times story on Sunday, and he also invoked uh, Alexander Hamilton's sentiment on cautious impeachment. What we are involved in here, as we conclude, is the most solemn of duties under our constitutional framework, the trial of the leader of the free world and the duly elected president of the United States. It is not a game of leaks and unsourced manuscripts. End quote. Hamilton put impeachment in the hands of this body, the Senate, precisely and specifically to be above that fray. He said this is the greatest deliberative body on earth. Well, another development, White House counsel Pat Cipollone gave the last argument in which he made the case against continuing the trial with witnesses, a question that will be put to the senators on Friday. Cipollone called on senators to end what another Trump lawyer had called the era of impeachment on Monday. The Senate cannot allow this to happen, the White House counsel said, adding, this should in now as quickly as possible reject these articles of impeachment for our country and for the american people end quote well jay seculo again in one of the highlights yesterday argued that impeaching and removing a president through two articles of impeachment that do not allege a crime is a dangerous path to establish for future presidents he said the words danger 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 at several points in his closing arguments and our presentation so far you have now heard from legal scholars from a variety of schools of thought from a variety of political backgrounds but they do have a common theme with a dire warning danger 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 well, seculo said future presidents could be paralyzed from their first day in office if the Senate allows the impeachment standard for Trump to stand to lower the bar of impeachment based on these articles of impeachment would impact the functioning of our constitutional republic and the framework of the Constitution for generations, he said. Specifically, he said this could um, intrude on a president's foreign policy by giving the legislative branch veto power if lawmakers question a president's intentions. Another highlight, and this will be the last I'll focus on from yesterday's hearings, he also stressed, this is Jay Sekulow, that elections are supposed to be determined, uh, supposed to determine Determine the next president. You're being asked to remove a duly elected president of the United States, and you're being asked to do it in an election year, he went on to add. Elections are the reason a president runs the executive branch and not executive branch employees who work for a president, White House Deputy Counsel Patrick Philbin said in making his final argument of the day. For two centuries, the president has been regarded as the sole organ of the nation in foreign affairs. So the idea that we are going to find out when the president had the wrong subjective motives by comparing what he did to the recommendations of some interagency consensus among staffers is fundamentally anti-constitutional. Again, Philbin speaking to senators. Well, the House Intelligence Committee's impeachment report to the House Judiciary Committee criticized Trump for acting in his own interest when he did not follow the recommendations of foreign policy advisors regarding his conversation with Zelensky. It inverts, Philbin went on to say, the constitutional structure. It also fundamentally anti-democratic because our system is rather unique in the amount of power that it gives the president. Well, it went on from there, but I won't... uh won't cover uh, much more of it, but these were some of the highlights from yesterday's hearing, the final uh, arguments made by the president's defense team uh, to the senators, asking them not to uh, remove the president from office and to reject the articles of impeachment that were submitted by the House.
Well, the story in the Los Angeles Times yesterday caused something of an uproar on social media after it characterized comments from Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein to say that she is leaning toward acquitting the president, causing the Democratic senator to fire back that the paper misunderstood what she said. Whether or not that was the case or the backlash was too severe, according to the Times, Feinstein was pressed by reporters for comments after the president's legal team wrapped up their opening arguments in the impeachment trial. Nine months left to go. The people should judge, Feinstein said, according to the paper, alluding to the 2020 presidential election. We are a republic. We are based on the will of the people. The people should judge. Well, that was my view, and it still is my view, she added, when asked whether she would ultimately vote to acquit Trump. We are not finished, she said. Well, the L.A. Times headline reported her comments with the headline, Feinstein leans toward acquitting Trump as his lawyer ends their impeachment defense arguments. That was lawyers, plural, by the way. Well, Feinstein eventually clarified on Twitter, suggesting that she is actually leaning toward voting to remove Trump from office, which is just the opposite of what she was quoted to have said. The L.A. Times misunderstood what I said today, she said. Before the trial, I said I'd keep an open mind, Feinstein tweeted. Now that both sides made their cases, it is clear the president's actions were wrong. He withheld vital foreign assistance for personal political gain. That can't be allowed to stand. Now, one wonders, is that a genuine misunderstanding on the part of the Times? Or was this a a lawmaker who was excoriated by her colleagues and had to change the position? Uh, It wouldn't be the first time that that was the suspicion when uh, his comments seemed to reflect one thing and then the day later something else. But we'll take Feinstein at her word. After she challenged the story, the Times changed its headline to Feinstein says she's a maybe on acquitting Trump as his defense team ends impeachment arguments. Okay, I guess that reflects what she just said. Well, speaking to reporters, she offered other remarks that seemed to shed light on her decision-making, including comments that the paper acknowledged might have been a nod to House impeachment managers' arguments about Trump's fitness for office. Impeachment isn't about one offense, she said, remarking on how she changed her opinion as the impeachment process proceeded. It's really about the character and inability and physical and mental fitness of the individual to serve the people, not themselves, which is an interesting way to approach it, given there are specific charges and a specific uh, impeachment brought by the House that does not include the things she mentioned. Uh, She is confined to the articles of impeachment. But again, Feinstein, who serves as ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, was first elected to the Senate in 92, is considered one of the body's more liberal members. Her comments came as the president's defense team presented its case for why House impeachment managers were wrong to argue for Trump's removal. Now, once again, it's interesting that the Senate, unlike the House, they take an oath of impartiality that they will, as jurists, if you will, uh, judge the the president's conduct as outlined in the articles of impeachment by the House managers and based on uh, that uh, case, uh, dis- determine whether or not the president should be removed from office. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we are in the two days today and tomorrow, possibly part of Friday, in the season in which there are, um, what is it, 16 hours, uh, the season in which senators have the opportunity to pose questions directly to the House managers or to the president's defense team through the chief justice of the Supreme Court. They are literally written out questions, and you will hear the voice of a sitting member of the Senate say, I have a question. That question is physically carried to the uh, the chief justice. He reads the question aloud, and then depending on the question and who it's uh, directed to, the question is answered. There are no follow-up questions. There's nothing that 
uh, is done other than those questions being asked. So that will continue uh, tonight and uh, tomorrow. And then Friday will be a very big day in this process. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. While the impeachment trial was going on in Washington, the president headlined a jam-packed rally in Wildwood, New Jersey, Tuesday night. Hours after his attorneys wrapped up their opening arguments in his Senate impeachment trial and minutes after sources say that Republicans don't have the votes yet to block additional witnesses who could extend the proceedings. An elevated level of enthusiasm was evident in the larger-than-normal crowd size inside the and outside the Wildwoods Convention Center. Um, a lot of people attended. Um, hotels ordinarily closed for the winter were open for business and largely sold out. Bars and restaurants offered drink specials like the Maga Rita and the Sapina Colada, bringing to life what was normally a ghost town in the cold days of January on the Jersey Shore. Well, Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale, he said that the campaign had received 158,632 requests for tickets at the event, including 92,000 distinct signups and had identified a total of 73,000 voters. I'm rounding them out, which is a 10.4 percent of whom didn't vote in 2016 and 26.3% of whom were self-described Democrats. The president again and again touted the blue-collar boom in the economy, including historically low unemployment, rising wages, especially among low-income workers and soaring markets. Earnings from uh, for the bottom 10 percent are rising faster than earnings for the top 10 percent for the first time ever, he said, since my election. The net worth for the bottom half of wage earners has increased by 47 percent, three times faster than the increase for the top one percent. He added the United States is now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. We don't need anybody else's energy anymore. Well, we kind of do. It's so nice, he went on to say, the U.S. recently achieved energy independence and became the top producer of crude oil though it has reportedly been the largest petroleum producer since 2012 and natural gas producer since 2015. Well, Democrats, by contrast, would demolish the U.S. economy, he said, noting that their health care plans, including proposals to pay for health care of illegal immigrants, simply were too expensive and inefficient. Well, he went on from there. It was a campaign event. And, of course, in the shadow of the uh, Iowa caucuses, which are coming up in just days. Meanwhile, the White House has told former National Security Advisor John Bolton not to publish his upcoming tell-all about his time in the Trump administration until classified material is removed from the manuscript. Under federal law and the non-disclosure agreements your client signed as a condition of gaining access to classified information, the manuscript may not be published or otherwise disclosed without the deletion of this classified information. The National Security Council aide wrote in a letter to Bolton attorney Charles Cooper last week, Bolton's book has disrupted the the, uh, Trump impeachment trial. The New York Times reported that Bolton's draft manuscript includes a claim the president explicitly linked a hold on uh, Ukraine aid to an investigation of uh, the Bidens, a central part of the case against him. Democrats have used the revelation about the book to renew calls for Bolton's testimony and testimony in general. Well, the letter was transmitted to Bolton's attorney on the 23rd of this month. The New York Times article about the manuscript came out on the 26th, three days after the letter was transmitted. That indicates the NSC has already made the determination that there was top secret information in Bolton's manuscript before anything became public. Earlier in the day, CNN reported that the letter amounted to a threat against Bolton, although it is common that classified 
information be deleted from any uh, public uh, holding. But sources say that uh, this was not a threat, saying the letter merely points out that there is top secret information contained in the manuscript that cannot be released to the public. Now, that submission of the uh, information uh, is supposed to have happened long before anything was made public, but this was, from what I understand, a leak, in quotes. Based on our preliminary review, the manuscript appears to be to contain rather significant amounts of classified information, uh, Knight wrote to Bolton's attorney. The letter goes on to say that NSC is happy to work with, the Bol- with Bolton to get the information into a form that can be published. Well, the manuscript remains under review in order for us to do our best to assist your client by identifying the classified information within the manuscript, while at the same time ensuring that publication does not harm the national security of the United States. Well, let's uh, let's see. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and billionaire environmental advocate Tom Steyer are carpeting Iowa airwaves with TV ads in the final week leading up to Monday's caucuses. Yes, Senator Bernie Sanders, of course, is involved in the impeachment trial, which means he's not out on the campaign trail, but he can appear in TV ads, as is uh, a billionaire environment advocate uh, Tom Steyer. Uh, In this week leading up to Monday's caucuses, the first contest in the presidential nomination calendar. The two are the biggest spenders on that front in the final stretch, according to figures provided by ad tracking firm Advertising Analytics. Steyer, the former hedge fund manager who transformed into a major political organizing player, is spending about $1.4 million to run ads starting the 28th. Sanders, the populist independent lawmaker who's making his second straight run for the White House, is shelling out over just, um, I should say, just over $1.2 million, a little less. Steyer's uh, using his vast wealth to bankroll his ad buys, while Sanders is dipping into his massive war chest, raised uh, almost entirely through small-dollar grassroots contributions from supporters. Sanders raised an eye-popping $34.5 million uh, the final three months of 2019, far ahead of the rest of his rivals for the Democratic presidential nomination. Also spending heavily to run spots in Iowa in the final week, are Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who's spending $950,000. Former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who's investing $850,000 more uh, to air commercials. And Senator Amy Klobuchar of neighboring Minnesota, who's spending about $750,000. Former Vice President Joe Biden, who's struggling with fundraising since jumping into the White House race last April, is spending over about a half a million dollars in the final week, far behind his top-tier rivals. And, in fact, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders seems to top him in the polling numbers as well. Pro-Biden uh, super PAC Unite the Country is dishing out nearly $1 million this week to run ads in support of the former vice president. We're trying to level the playing field, says a longtime Biden friend and advisor, Democratic consultant, and one of the co-founders of the super PAC, uh, speaking to Fox News. We're trying to make sure Biden's message and record are being delivered. Uh, He said the group spent roughly $6 million in Iowa on TV and digital ads, as well as direct mail since autumn. Longtime Iowa-based Democratic strategist Jeff Link, a veteran of numerous presidential and Senate campaigns, questioned whether Biden's relatively low spending in Iowa is either a sign of confidence in the super PAC or they're conserving resources for New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina the three other early voting states that hold contests later in February. Yeah, it's on. The election is approaching. Another outside group that's spending big bucks is the pro-Israel lobbying group Democratic Majority for Israel. The group is spending about $675,000 to run a TV commercial that questions Sanders' electability by spotlighting his October heart attack 
and his progressive positions on issues. The ad is the first to attack the 78-year-old candidate over his heart attack. Rival campaigns nervous about the likely backlash from voters have stayed mostly silent on Sanders' health. And, of course, that's what PACs uh, largely do, what candidates cannot. Tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang is spending just over a million dollars in the final week leading up to the caucuses. No other Democratic presidential candidate or outside group is spending six figures in the final seven days leading to the caucuses. Iowans are getting bombarded on the airwaves with campaign commercials. They're used to it. The bottom line is that the airwaves are cluttered and the message needs to be really clear and focused on why you are the best one to take uh, take on Trump in the fall. Well, we'll see how they fare. But again, these contests begin next Monday. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump signed the historic United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, replacing the Clinton-era North American Free Trade Agreement that he called a disaster. The USMCA, which is the biggest trade deal of all time, covers more than $1.3 trillion of commerce and is the second major trade deal secured by the Trump administration this year. The agreement has already been ratified by Mexico, but not yet by Canada. You're going to see more jobs all across the economy in the automobile sector and the agriculture sector and, of course, in the energy sector as well. That's a quote from Energy Secretary uh, Dan Brulette that uh, Signing ceremony took place earlier. The USMCA requires 75 percent of automobile components be manufactured in the United States, Canada or Mexico in order to avoid tariffs. By 2023, some 40 to 45 percent of automobile parts must be made by workers who earn at least $16 an hour. Well, the agreement is expected to create 80,000 new jobs tied to the auto industry and bring in up to $30 billion of new investment in the sector. The pact will also open new markets for American wheat, poultry, and eggs, among other things. Again, Canada hasn't yet signed it. This is a colossal victory for our farmers and ranchers, the president said at the signing ceremony. Everybody said this was a deal that could not be done, he added, but we got it done. Uh, Once fully implemented, the USMCA is expected to lift U.S. gross domestic product by as many as 1.2 percent points and create uh, up to 589,000 jobs, according to the International Trade Commission. Now, those jobs are not all in the U.S., but overall. After the trade deal was uh, approved by the Senate on the 16th by a vote of 89 to 10, Senator Charles Grassley uh, hailed it as a major achievement for the president and a very big win for the American people. The signing of the USMCA came nearly two weeks after the president inked an initial trade deal with China, combined with two agreements uh, uh, a compass, rather encompass more than $2 trillion worth of trade and could add as much as 1.7 percentage point to the U.S. economy and its uh, its growth. The U.S. economy expanded at a 2.1 percent uh, pace in the three months through September. We're restoring America's industrial might like never before, the president declared at a campaign rally uh, Tuesday evening. Um, they'll all be coming back. They want to be where the action is. Well, time will tell if that equation looks quite like uh, the president described it. Well, Britain made a bad decision on Tuesday to allow Huawei to build out its 5G network, but the United States can mitigate the damage. Now, the concern is um, Huawei is fraught with ways to um, steal, if you will, information that's using that superhighway. The United States has warned that this is not the 5G system that you want because it 
uh, injects uh, Chinese government into this uh, kind of communication, and that makes it more difficult and challenging for the U.S. and Britain to connect to one another because of this network. Well, the central concern, Huawei is not actually a communications provider in the vein of Verizon or AT&T. It's actually a Chinese intelligence cutout. Correspondingly, Huawei's ultimate authority does not begin and end with its CEO and its executive board, but rather with Xi Jinping. And Huawei's strategic objective is not maximized profit or service delivery, but the provision of that service as a cover for Chinese intelligence service interception and disruption of communications, a significant amount of power. Well, these points are not debatable. Everyone has acknowledged that is the case. Well, as the United Kingdom's own intelligence services has shown, Huawei's software is designed with specific flaws to enable Chinese intelligence operations under the pretense of deniability. In short, China uses Huawei's system to spy. If caught, Huawei will claim that the espionage was a consequence of design mistakes rather than shared intent. The Trump administration and senators from both parties are concerned about this. They recognize that China's access to the 5G networks of America's closest ally is a um, specific threat. 5G networks are specifically designed to push data and data access closer to users. The advent of cloud-based systems means that Huawei's towers will gain ever-increasing access to data streams in the years to come. China will use this access to monitor devices near intelligence facilities, steal compromising information for blackmail, and otherwise disrupt British and allied security. It is for that reason that the U.S. is warning it will reduce operations at certain joint intelligence centers, such as the National Security Agency station at RAF Minwith Hill. Well, to be sure, Xi has uh, scored a big win today. Expect him to uh, reward Johnson with near-term multi-billion dollar Chinese investments in the U.K. economy. After all, Huawei's access to Western networks is a very high priority for Xi. He intends to use that access to serve his long-term global strategy of replacing the U.S.-led international order with one centered on Chinese hegemony and feudal um, uh, mercantilism. It is reflected both in China's state propaganda and by Huawei's public relations campaigns. The U.S. can mitigate the damage, however. First, the NSA can transfer operations away from areas served by Huawei's towers. More importantly, when, as it will, China uses uh, this system to spy on Britons, the U.S. can make public the evidence of that intrusion. Let's see how Johnson, who has been briefed on Huawei's threat, handles the political fallout. And right now, the U.S. can make public more evidence of Huawei's connection to the Chinese state. This will increase domestic pressure on Johnson to reconsider the plans. Well, the U.S. can also keep up the heat on Huawei's access to U.S. hardware and software. Thus far, that tactic has allowed the U.S. to turn Huawei's cell phones into junk that few want to buy. Applying the same approach to 5G as the Senate has taken steps to do, Britain will be forced to use alternative providers. The president or his successor uh, will be critical here. That person has to resist China's pressure to include intellectual property transfer to Huawei in any stage, uh, any stage two trade deal. So yes, Britain's decision is bad news, but this isn't the end of the road or the end of the game. The U.S. can still defeat this insidious enemy. Well, the Congressional Budget Office has released its budget and economic projections for fiscal year 2020-2030. The latest report confirms what the Congressional Budget Office has been telling lawmakers for years. 
The nation is hurtling toward a spending-driven debt crisis. But, you know, that's for the next Congress and the next president and another generation to deal with. At least that's been the approach up to now. Without major reforms to mandatory spending programs, it's not a question of if, but when all Americans will feel the financial impacts of Congress's spending addiction. The Congressional Budget Office project, the uh, projects rather, the annual budget deficit is going to surpass $1 trillion. That's 4.6% of gross domestic product in fiscal year 2020 and rise to over $1.7 trillion annually by the end of the decade. Cumulative deficits will top $13.1 trillion from 2021 to 2030. Well, the Congressional Budget Office also estimates that debt held by the public will rise to $17.9 trillion this year. That's 80.8% of GDP and to total $31.4 trillion by the end of the fiscal year of 2030, nearly 100% of GDP, gross domestic product. Well, to be clear, the increase is projected uh, uh, in projected deficit and debt levels is not a matter of the federal government taking in too little revenue. Revenues are projected to keep rising from 16.4% of GDP in fiscal year 2020 to 18% in 2030, higher than the 50-year average. However, spending is set to rise from 21% of GDP in 2021 to 23% of GDP over the next 10 years. That's 3% above the historical average. Well, there are some takeaways that we don't have time to get into, but a couple of things to mention. Debt will rise to historically high levels. Healthcare and Social Security are driving the spending growth, but nobody wants to deal with that. And interest payments will crowd out national priorities. Revenues um, have been growing, so that's not the issue between fiscal 2020 and 2030. Again, revenues are projected to rise by 2.6% GDP. Rising deficits and debt levels point to a spending problem. If Congress allows the tax cuts to expire, for example, deficits will likely grow even faster than projected. Historically, tax increases are paired with increased spending, not deficit reductions. And waiting means a higher cost for future generations. But of course, we don't have to worry about them as long as we're living quite comfortably today. They can worry about that when it's their watch. I hope that's not the case. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Once again, James Blend producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Today's program. Well, there's growing concern about the coronavirus, the outbreak in China that's now spreading to other places around the globe. And a plane that's carrying about 201 U.S. citizens evacuated from Wuhan, China, which is the epicenter of this coronavirus. And it landed in the U.S. today, or I should say Tuesday night, to refuel in Alaska before it took off for California. The plane is en route to California's March Air Reserve Base for the Logistics that they have, uh, according to officials, it's a Boeing 747, red and gold stripes, no passenger window, was initially headed to Ontario International Airport in California. It landed in Alaska at Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport Tuesday night, was refueled, took off for California. Every passenger passed the screening. However, they had to go through screening out of concern for the coronavirus. The whole plane erupted in cheers when the crew said, welcome home to the United States. That's according to Alaska's chief medical officer, Dr. Ann Zink. The individuals on board the flight were uh, screened before takeoff, monitored during the flight by medical personnel, and screened again when the plane landed in Anchorage. Now, this has, from what I understand, a three-week 
incubation period, so I'm not sure how effective that screening will have been. But the passengers would be monitored on the last leg of the flight by medical personnel on board, evaluated upon arrival at March Air Reserve Base in Riversdale County, California, and then monitored for symptoms post-arrival, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The chairman of the San Bernardino County Board of Supervisors, where the Ontario airport is located, And a commissioner at the airport said on social media that the CDC had informed him of its decision to divert the flight to the airbase. Ontario International is one of the uh, repatriation airports for the West Coast. And we always uh, are prepared, he says, to receive our citizens aboard in times of um, emergencies. Uh, We were prepared, but the State Department decided to switch the flight to March Air Force Base for logistics uh, that they had identified. Well, um, Mr. Hagman said, uh, speaking to the Los Angeles Times, that he's given no other details about the flight, so that's all he knew. It's been very fluid in terms of the 36 to 48-hour information. He added that people in his San Bernardino, California district had voiced their concerns over the flight landing at Ontario International Airport. People are understandably concerned. They wanted to make sure the government is protecting them as well as those on board. The aircraft had reportedly been chartered by the American government to fly out diplomats from the U.S. consulate in Wuhan, as well as other citizens. San Bernardino County was initially picked to serve as the repatriation point for roughly 240 U.S. citizens arriving from Wuhan to the U.S. Well, the Department of State has the lead for the safe and expedient ordered departure of U.S. citizens. The Department of Health and Human Services and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are collaborating with the Department of State on the logistics. Well, the lobby in the international terminal of the Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport was nearly empty Tuesday afternoon, and an airport employee was seen jogging through uh, though the um, f- the facility that's closed counters for companies like Korean Air, China Airlines, and Asiana Airlines, because the terminal is only active in the summer, it allows the airport to practice situations such as this one, where they want to isolate those on board at least somewhat. Meanwhile, Ontario International Airport appreciated the support and understanding during the very sensitive uh, time of transporting patients. Well, the U.S. State Department... Um, uh, says that China has cut off access to Wuhan, 16 other cities in Hubei province to prevent people from leaving and spreading the virus further, whose symptoms include fever, cough, sore throat, shortness of breath, a, or pneumonia in some cases. The U.S., Japan, and South Korea all have planned evacuations. Well, after three years of anticipation and some dread, President Trump announced the launch of his deal of the century to achieve peace between Israel and Palestine. When Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at his side, he outlined details for a proposal that would recognize a Palestinian state following extensive land swaps and security arrangements. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas was not present, having broken off communications with the White House following several U.S. decisions deemed biased toward Israel. Abbas immediately rejected the plan, which Palestinians had long declared dead on arrival, But Netanyahu's acceptance was enthusiastic, declaring himself willing to begin negotiations with the Palestinians on such terms. A day earlier, Netanyahu's challenger, Benny Gans, also signed, uh, rather, signals his party's agreement with the president's uh, proposal. With three Arab states lacking a peace treaty with Israel in attendance, Oman, Bahrain, and United Arab Emirates, the president hopes there will be a regional push to implement the plan. And with $50 billion promised as investment for the nascent Palestinian state, the president believes all the necessary pieces are in place. All previous generations, from Lyndon Johnson, uh, they tried bitterly 
and failed. But I was not elected to do small things or shy away from big problems. He considers this uh, one big problem that he has not shied away from. It only required um, he approach peace in a fundamentally different manner. No Arab or Israeli would be uprooted from their home. This guarantees the preservation of all existing Israeli settlements in occupied Palestinian territory. Jerusalem would remain the undivided capital of Israel. At the same time, on the other side of the separation wall, eastern Jerusalem would become the capital of the Palestinian state, receiving a U.S. embassy. Palestinian residents in Jerusalem on the other side of the wall would be given the option to become Palestinian citizens, Israeli citizens, or remain as permanent residents. Israel would exercise security over Jerusalem's holy sites, while Jordan would maintain its status quo authority over the Temple Mount and Al-Aqsa Mosque. Muslim pilgrims would be guaranteed access. Palestinian refugees would be barred from uh, Israel, but... but, um, Processed in limited numbers into the new state of Palestine, pending approval, the rest would be given the option of naturalizing into their nation of uh, residence or relocating elsewhere. Funds would be set up to facilitate that choice. Israel would receive um, land in the Jordan Valley to address security concerns. Palestine would receive land in the Negev Desert for industrial development. All international access would be controlled by Israel with corridors created to ease domestic transportation to non-contiguous territory. To do so, it has to demilitarize Gaza and stop payments to the uh, families of terrorists. Domestic laws have to reflect human rights and freedom of religion, says um, the president. It's time for the Muslim world to correct the mistake it made in 1948 when it attacked rather an uh, a attacked rather than recognize Israel. Uh, If you choose the path of peace, we will be there to help you every step of the way, he went on to say. Netanyahu also referenced 1948, the year of Israel's independence, and comparing Trump to then-U.S. President Harry Truman. History would look back on this day similarly, he said, as Trump extended Israel's sovereignty over Judea and Samaria, his favored term for the West Bank. You have been the greatest friend Israel has ever had in the White House, he said. There have been others, but it's not even close. Joel Rosenberg, co-founder of the Alliance for Peace of Jerusalem, was impressed. I was an excellent, um, rather, it was an excellent rollout ceremony, he said, dramatic, surprising, and controversial. Withholding full judgment until he reads the full 181-page plan, the best-selling author of End Times uh, Inspired Political Fiction said the Trump's... uh, plan uh, gave Israel almost everything they wanted, but was also generous to the Palestinians. On that count, it may complicate domestic politics for the president and Netanyahu alike. Though some Christian Zionists oppose a two-state solution altogether, Rosenberg believes many evangelicals will be enthusiastic. But Israel's settler community wants everything and may not get what they want. Uh, More than 600,000 Israeli Jews live in settlements scattered across the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Their main political body has rejected the deal, as have a few Netanyahu allies who have called for immediate annexation. They're very angry, and Bibi uh, could have a a problem on his right, he said. He might now surprisingly have to make a deal uh, with the center um, with Gantz, his political opponent. Well, it goes on from there, but... This is the plan that has been floated. The Palestinians, at least the leadership, has said we do not accept this plan. It will be rather interesting to see if the Palestinian people have an opportunity to read what's being offered and how the general public responds to this rather bold, brazen plan by the U.S. president. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Franklin Graham, who is planning a, an evangelical, um, evangelistic event in the UK, has now responded to the cancellation of that event for uh, it being incompatible with LGBTQ views. Well, the evangelist penned an open letter to the LGBTQ community in the United Kingdom after an event there was canceled for uh, that very reason. He is, of course, the son of late Billy Graham. He was labeled a homophobic hate preacher by the Liverpool Labour LGBT Network, who wrote in a letter that they fear Graham's appearance may incite hateful mobilization and risk the security of our LGBTQ community. Well, ACC Liverpool, where Graham was slated to speak in June as part of a tour in the U.K., made the announcement over the weekend saying we can no longer reconcile the balance between freedom of speech and the divisive impact this event is having in our city. Well, interestingly, the divisive impact is on one side and not the side that the LGBTQ community is suggesting uh, poses a threat. Well, Graham is the president of Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He responded in a Facebook post um, that what the group wrote about him was not true. I'm not coming out of hate, he wrote. I'm coming out of love. I'm not coming to the UK to speak against anybody. I'm coming to speak for everybody. The gospel is inclusive. Well, the prominent Christian speaker said God defines homosexuality as a sin, but added, if we're willing to accept him by faith and turn away from our sin, he will forgive us and give us new life, eternal life in him. Well, despite the petition and cancellation, he invited everyone in the LGBTQ community to come and hear for yourselves the gospel message that I will be bringing from God's word, the Bible. Well, Graham's tour scheduled includes venues in Glasgow, in Newcastle, Sheffield, Milton Keynes, Cardiff, Birmingham and London, LGBTQ leaders have called for cancellation of the Sheffield visit. So we'll see what uh, what happens there. Again, um, the at least one of the events has thus far been canceled by the Liverpool label or labor rather LGBT network who wrote the letter. Dennis Prager in a Daily Signal column recently points out some unhappy statistics in America between 1946 and 2006. The suicide rate quadrupled for males ages 15 to 24 and doubled for females the same age. In 1950, the suicide rate per 100,000 Americans was 11.4. In 2017, it was 14. According to Grant Dew, Director of the Research and Evaluation at the Minnesota Department of Corrections, in the 80s, there were 32 mass public shootings, which the Uh, He defines as incidents in which four or more people are killed publicly with guns within 24 hours. In the 1990s, there were 42. In the first decade of this century, there were 28. In all the 50s, when there were fewer controls on uh, guns, there there was one. Fifty years before that, in the 1900s, there were none. Reuters Health reported in 2019 suicidal thinking Severe depression and rates of self-injury among U.S. college students more than doubled over less than a decade. A nationwide study suggests the study's co-author, Gene Twinge, a psychology professor at San Diego State University, said it suggests that something is seriously wrong in the lives of young people. This data is not only applicable to Americans, as social commentator Kay Horowitz wrote in City Journal in 2019, and I'm quoting, loneliness Public health experts tell us is killing as many people as obesity and smoking. Germans are lonely. The uh, bon vivant French are lonely. And even the Scandinavians, the happiest people in the world, according to the U.N.'s World Happiness Report. 
How reliable that is, I'll leave to you. They're lonely, too. British Prime Minister Theresa May recently appointed a minister of loneliness. Consider Japan, a country now in the throes of an epidemic of um, kadushki or something very like that, roughly translated as lonely deaths. Local Japanese uh, in that uh, country, local Japanese papers regularly publish stories about kinless elderly whose deaths go unnoticed until the telltale smell or um, I won't go into detail of all of that, but it alerts neighbors. Although people have more money, better health care, better health, better housing and more education, they live longer than any time in history. They especially young people are unhappier than at any time since data collection began. Why has that happened? Well, there are a number of reasons. Increased use of illicit drugs and prescription drug use. Less human interaction because of constant cell phone use are two widely offered valid explanations. Less valid explanations include competition, grade anxiety, capitalism, income inequality, things that have existed in much greater rates in the past. And then there are young people's fears that because of global warming, they have a bleak and perhaps no future. But the biggest reason may be the almost complete loss of values and meaning over the last half century. America and much of the rest of the West, uh, but uh, confining the discussion to, the, to America, was found on two sets of values, Judeo-Christian and American. This combination created the freest, most opportunity-given Uh, most affluent country in world history. This is not chauvinism. It is, in fact, the case. And it was regarded as such throughout the world. That's why France gave America, and only America, the Statue of Liberty. That's why people from every country on earth so wanted to immigrate to the United States and still do. Chief among American values was keeping government as small as possible. This enabled non-governmental institutions, Kiwanis International, Rotary International, the Lions Club, book clubs, the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, bowling leagues, music societies, and churches to provide Americans with friends and to provide the neediest Americans with help. But as government has gotten ever larger, many of those non-government groups have dwindled in number or simply disappeared. Another set of values is what is referred to as middle class or bourgeois values. These include getting married before one has a child, making a family, getting a job so as to self-sustain and sustain one's family, self-discipline, delayed gratification and patriotism. All of these have been under attack by America's elites with the following results. One in five young Americans has no contact with his or her father, not including fathers who have died. In 2011, 72% of black children were born to unmarried mothers. In 1965, it was 24%. In 2012, 29% of white children were born to unmarried women. In 1965, it was 3.1%. The majority of births to millennials are to unmarried women, yet according to a 2018 Cigna study, single parents are generally the loneliest Americans. Marriage and family are the single greatest source of happiness for most people, yet the percentage of American adults who've never been married is at an historic high. More Americans than ever will not get married, or they will marry so late that they'll not have children. In 1960, 9% of blacks aged 25 and older had never been married, In 2012, it was 40 percent. Again, 1969 percent, 2012, 40 percent. And that doesn't even uh, mention the biggest problem, the loss of meaning in young people's lives. Well, this is uh, Dennis Prager's assessment. I want to return to that on another day this week with the second part of his analysis, why so many young people are unhappy. So stay with us uh, tomorrow. We'll look at the uh, the second half of that. By the way, this was published originally in the Patriot Post, and you can uh, you can find that uh, the first part in the Daily Signal and the second part in the Patriot Post 
I'll try to put a link on that t- tomorrow. But um, talking about why so many young people are unhappy. Well, a New York high school student hopes next year's Super Bowl is played, well, a day earlier. Frankie Ruggeri, he's 16, and he told the local TV station that he wants the Super Bowl to be played on a Saturday instead of a Sunday because schools are not open the next day. He started a petition online to get the idea moving forward, and a week before Super Bowl, whatever is coming up, uh, kicks off between the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers, the petition has gained well, about 50,000 signatures. It will get more money. It will get more visitors to the game. NFL will get more television views because most government jobs have uh, off. Um, they'll get more children to enjoy their beloved game on TV or at the venue. Most of uh, your playoff games are on Saturday, probably have prices because uh, more visitors will uh, will go. Well, next year's game is set to be played in Tampa, Florida, at the Raymond James Stadium. Well, he was pretty persistent, very persistent, in fact, and he really believed it was a good cause. Well, Mr. Uh, Regary, the 16-year-old teen, uh, say, says that his father um, was also enthusiastic. Frankie, go for it. Well, while many would like to make the Monday after Super Bowl a national holiday, really, uh, Frankie told the station he hopes to make some kind of change. Hopefully it just passes on, makes awareness. The small idea turns into a big one. Well, the Super Bowl is coming up this Sunday at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, Florida. It will be on Sunday. Now, I was hopeful that this kid was motivated by something other than, will it just be more convenient for everybody? You know, sort of an Eric Little moment where, you know, we're not going to engage in competition on the Lord's Day. But he believes that this will be better for the game and make it more accessible for people who enjoy the game. So we'll see how this uh, this works out moving forward. My guess is the 16-year-old is probably not going to have a major influence on what happens in the Super Bowl moving forward. But we'll we'll continue to follow the story. Also want to mention uh, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Jenny Donnelly. She's the author of Still, Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos. We'll also talk with Dan Kramer, Executive Director of Strategic Programs at Wycliffe Bible Translators. We'll take a look at how persecution is impacting their work. We've got um, oh, some stuff coming up, spots, I suppose, and then we'll be back with Cross International. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.